This is History 2311, Week 5B, Boom and Bust. Gone are my blues and gone are my tears. I've got good news to shout in your ears. The long-lost dollar has come back to the fold. With silver you can turn your dreams to gold. We're in the money, we're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. We're in the money. All right, what are we looking at here? We've talked a bunch in this class about reading historical sources, different kinds of historical sources, and of course your primary source analysis is due this week. So we could go through the same four steps we go through uh, with every primary source. Number one, identify the source. Well, this is the musical number that opens the film Gold Diggers of 1933. It's a musical about a Broadway chorus girl who falls in love with a millionaire. The woman singing is the actress, uh, singer, dancer, Ginger Rogers. She would go on to much more fame, uh, starring in musicals with Fred Astaire. This dance number, uh, like all the musical numbers in, in this film, was staged and choreographed by the great Busby Berkeley. Berkeley was famous for this kind of elaborate musical number in which dancing women were choreographed to form these kind of elaborate, uh, geometrical, sometimes kaleidoscopic patterns. Step two, what does the source say? Well, the song is about the depression, or rather it is insisting that the depression is over. We are in the money. We never see a headline about bread lines. When we see the landlord, we can look that guy right in the eye. Old man depression, you are through. So what can the source tell us about the past? Does this song mean that in 1933, the depression was through, that Americans were in the money? Uh, of course not. I mean, I mean, you know better than that. You know that what a source literally says is not what it actually reveals. Step three is to contextualize. And when you know the context, that this movie was produced in 1933, the very worst year of the Depression, its meaning is pretty obvious. It is a fantasy of prosperity. It is a fantasy of wealth, a dream of wealth and the return of good economic times. Leon Will, here when has Arnie made, easy ice skates Arnie say, oh man, be dish and pray, we are a woo, three, you want me, I say on red. The last part of the clip is a little bit harder to interpret. Ginger Rogers is singing a verse in Pig Latin. You know Pig Latin? It's that language game where you move the first letter of each word to the end and add A. Pig Latin pay. It was kind of a fad in the late 1920s and the early 1930s. Why they put it into the film, I don't know, but it, it's pretty impressive. So that video clip is one kind of historical source. Here's another. This is also a historical source. This is also evidence. What does this tell us about the past? Well, it's the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And what the Dow Jones Average is, is an, uh, an index averaging the price of something like 30 significant stocks, 30 large corporations traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So what we see here is the Dow Jones Index from 1920 to about 1945. And obviously the main story of this graph, what most people will see is the huge spike the rapid rise and the equally rapid fall before and after 
about 1929. And most people will read this graph as a story of economic boom times followed by a crash, a terrible crash. And that is a pretty valid interpretation. But remember, just like with the Busby Berkeley video, what a source literally says is not always the same as what it actually reveals. Stocks go up and down for all sorts of reasons, right? I mean, some of you probably over the last few weeks followed the roller coaster ride of GameStop stock as a Reddit forum organized to inflate the price of the stock and soak the hedge funds that were betting on it going down. Now, I'm not an economist, and I know most of you are not economists, but as a historian, I always think the economy is too important to be left to economists. You can't understand American history without talking about money, without talking about who has it, who doesn't have it, and where it goes, because money's almost always in motion. What makes the stock market go up and down? What makes GameStop go up and down? What makes the Dow Jones go up and down? To oversimplify, people invest in a stock when they think its value is going to go up, when they think that enterprise is going to earn money. And since the Dow is an index of 30 large corporate stocks, what this graph, what this line on the graph effectively measures is the projected or anticipated earnings of big corporations. When people think big corporations are going to make money, it goes up. When they think they're not, it goes down. Now, whether what you're looking at is real or just as much a fantasy as the Busby Berkeley number you just watched kind of depends on your point of view. Here's another graph, another set of economic data from the same time period. This comes from Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, which made a big splash a few years ago. What does this graph tell us about the past? What stories does it tell? Well, the red line on this graph shows the income share of the top 10% of wealthiest Americans. So in other words, what percentage of all the income earned every year in the United States is going to the wealthiest 10%. And so this is a way of representing income inequality. When the line goes up, that means that the wealthiest 10% are earning more. And you see at the top of this graph around 1929, 10% of Americans are actually earning 50% of the income. That means that the gap between rich and poor is very stark and growing. When the line goes down, that means the gap between rich and poor is getting a little bit less stark. The wealthiest 10% still earn more than 10%. They wouldn't be the wealthiest if they didn't. But the divide between rich and poor is not as extreme. So if you look at this graph as a whole, what stories does it tell you about the 20th century? Well, what I see here is that at the start of the 20th century, income inequality was very high. The wealthy had a really big share of the national income. And if you, if you were to graph wealth instead of income, uh, it, this would be even more stark. I see that inequality went up as the market went up in the 1920s and peaked in 1929. Then there's a steep drop around 1930 and an even steeper drop around 1940. And remember, this is not a graph of prosperity, but a graph of inequality. So the low point of this graph, those years from around 1950 to 1980, are years of relative equality. And in fact, the gap between the rich and poor in the United States was less in those decades than any other time in US history. But since around 1980, the rich have been getting richer again. And today in the 20th century, you can see the gulf between rich and poor is as high as it has ever been higher than it was in the late 19th century Gilded Age and just as high as it was 
1929. Now the graph doesn't tell us why any of these things happen. It generates questions for us to investigate. And that of course is the fourth step when we look at primary sources, corroborate, use the source to generate things to investigate. So if I was looking at this graph for the first time and I didn't know anything about US history, it would make me very curious about what happened in 1929. It would also make me curious about what happened around 1941 and what happened around, I don't know, 1980. All of those look like key turning points in the story of wealth and income inequality in America. We'll talk about the first of those turning points today as we look at the economic history of the 1920s, the story of boom and bust. So part one, the return to normalcy. These were the candidates in the election, the presidential election of 1920. The election of 1920 was in many ways a referendum on the outgoing president, Woodrow Wilson, and on Wilson's Treaty of Versailles and the, the League of Nations, and kind of a referendum on progressivism and progressive reform in general. Wilson toyed with the idea of running for an unprecedented third term as president. He thought maybe if he won, he could save the League of Nations, but his health was poor. He suffered a serious stroke in 1919, and the Democrats ended up nominating the governor of Ohio, James Cox. The Republicans nominated a conservative Ohio senator, Warren Harding. And I mentioned before that the socialist Eugene Debs ran for president from prison and actually did pretty well considering. So Warren Harding, the Republican in the race, kind of ignored his real opponent, Cox, and ran effectively against Wilson's legacy. In particular, he ran against joining the League of Nations, but he also ran against progressive policies like progressive income tax, trust busting, and so on. Harding famously promised that a vote for him was a vote to return to normalcy. And people have made fun of him for 100 years because normalcy is not actually a word. But Harding got the last laugh because after the First World War and after the short, short economic crisis that followed the war, the crash in the stock market, the wave of strikes and clashes between workers and employers, the racial violence of the Red Summer, not to mention the pandemic, the global pandemic, flu pandemic of 1918, a return to normalcy looked pretty good. I mean, normalcy was basically the slogan of Joe Biden in the 2020 election. So Harding promised a return to normal and also an end of grand progressive schemes to remake the world. And he won the election very handily. Looking at the electoral map of 1920, you see that the only states Cox won were in the South, which was still loyal to the Democratic Party in these years. But if you look at those vote totals, either popular vote or electoral vote, the election was not close. And for the rest of the decade, the White House would be occupied by a series of conservative pro-business Republicans, Harding, then Calvin Coolidge, then Herbert Hoover. Compared to the kind of reformer zeal of the progressive era, the 1920s really marked a retreat from politics for a lot of Americans. F. Scott Fitzgerald, chronicler of the Jazz Age, said looking back that the events of 1919 left us cynical rather than revolutionary, that the characteristic of the jazz age was that it had no interest in politics at all. 
And, you know, Fitzgerald is generalizing. He's talking about his friends, people like him, but he's not wrong. In the general public, we see a retreat from political participation in these years. Uh, voting participation was close to 90% in the election of 1896. It dropped to less than 50% of eligible voters in 1924. 1920 also marked a kind of end of the progressive era, or at least certainly a generational changing of the guard. Teddy Roosevelt died in 1919. Wilson died in 1921. Uh, Debs died a few years later. Jane Addams outlived them all, but she lost a great deal of her popularity and influence from during the war when she opposed the war. And in the 1920s, that kind of reform energy of the progressive movement just, just seems spent. I mean, there are ways in which the 1920s, and I talked about this last week, kept alive some of the worst aspects of progressivism, uh, but not the best kept the social control aspects, things like prohibition and immigration restriction, while abandoning the social justice aspects. An even more famous quote about the politics of this era came from one of those Republican presidents, Calvin Coolidge, when he said in 1925, the chief business of the American people is business. And the simplest way to characterize the politics of the 1920s is that it was a pro-business politics. So in this cartoon, the man playing the saxophone is President Coolidge. His saxophone is labeled praise, as in praise for big business, and the flapper, the somewhat husky flapper doing the Charleston, is in fact big business. Well, what made business big in these years? Never before, the Wall Street Journal said in 1928, has the government been so completely fused with business. I mean, you know, cooperation between business and government is not new. Most American governments are pro-business, but rarely in American history had the cooperation been so close, had business values been so widely shared and so energetically promoted by the White House as they were in the 1920s. And the results were dramatic. Look at the graph, look at that line climbing up to the sky. Now remember what you're looking at, the predicted after-tax earnings of large corporations. So in the 1920s, corporations were doing well and people predicted that they would continue to do well. Productivity and economic outputs rose dramatically, corporate profits rose dramatically. If the business of the American people was business, then business was good. The most celebrated industry in 1920s America, the backbone and really the symbol of economic growth was the automobile industry. Automobile production tripled during this decade from around one and a half million cars per year to nearly five million cars per year. The genius of the 19th century industrial revolution, the industrialization of the late 1800s in the United States especially was mass production, the way American industry boosted production and maximized output. And by the early 20th century, people like Henry Ford and others like him had mastered the use of the assembly line, which you see here, hundreds of identical cars coming down the conveyor belt to maximize production, to produce more and more cars, more and more products, more cheaply, to the point where the danger became that the economy would simply outproduce the ability of consumers to buy the product. Production increased so much in these years that even if you made whatever you were making cheaply, and, and that was also part of Henry Ford's genius was to make the car very cheap, there was still a limit to how much people wanted to buy or could afford. So after a half century of perfecting mass production, the cutting edge of 
the 20th century industrial economy was built around boosting consumption, getting people to buy things. Mass production required mass consumption. Well, how do you get people to buy more things? One thing you can do is you can pay them more. You increase their, their wages so they can spend more. And in 1914, Henry Ford famously announced he was going to begin paying his assembly line workers $5 a day which at the time seemed like an extravagant sum for factory workers. But Ford was very smart. He was making a lot of money. He could afford it. Not only that, he wanted to pay his workers enough and make his car cheap enough that his factory workers could buy the cars they made. And the Model T Ford, which was introduced back in 1908, was the first mass-produced, mass-market car. It was the first car that the middle class and even some of the working class could afford. By 1929, for the first time, half of all American families owned an automobile. That might not seem like a lot, but in England, they didn't reach that point, half of the families owning a car, until 1980. And this synthesis of mass production and mass consumption, exemplified by Ford, became known as Fordism. And people looked at, looked at Ford and said, this is the future. I don't know if they still have you read in high school, read the novel Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. It's kind of a utopia or actually kind of a dystopia written in 1931. But one little detail that always stuck with me is that in this imagined sci-fi dystopia, they all worship Henry Ford as a god. Because in this era, that Fordist synthesis of mass production and mass consumption looked like the future. Of course, there's another way to get people to buy more stuff, and that is to increase demand, to convince people to buy things that maybe they don't really need. Henry Ford's philosophy always was, we keep the price low by standardizing. All Model T Fords are black. They all have interchangeable parts, and the car doesn't change from year to year. The 1908 Model T is identical to the 1927 Model T. You make a good product and you make it cheap and you make it identical year after year after year. It was Ford's competition at General Motors that came up with a different idea of changing the design of their car every year so that people would want to buy new cars. And they offered stylish designs, they offered different colors, and they also made numerous models at different price points. So maybe your first car would be a Chevrolet, but then if you started making a little more money, you might think about buying a Buick. And then after a few more years, maybe you'd want a Cadillac. Alfred Sloan, who was the head of General Motors, called this dynamic obsolescence or planned obsolescence, designing products to have an artificially limited lifetime or appeal. That 1926 Chevrolet, three years after you bought it, it still ran fine, but it didn't look as cool anymore. It didn't look as splashy as the 1929 Cadillac. And this strategy worked. The Ford company sold half the families in America their first car, but it was General Motors that figured out how to sell them their second car and their third and so on. And by the 1920s, Ford sales were outpaced by General Motors. And it was a kind of a meaningful turning point when in 1927, Henry Ford finally consented to stop making Model Ts and instead produce a new car every year. The automobile was the biggest, most famous consumer purchase of the era, but all kinds of consumer goods proliferated in the 1920s. There were new appliances and devices, things like telephones, radios, vacuum cleaners, washing machines, refrigerators. 
Another innovation of the era was how people bought these new appliances. For the first time, they would buy these things on credit through installment buying plans. For earlier generations, for a lot of Americans, debt was suspicious. Debt was something to avoid. Debt was for farmers and sharecroppers. I mean, there's an old Republican idea that you couldn't really be free if you were in debt, that you weren't a free democratic citizen. But by the 1920s, this was falling by the wayside and it became easier to get credit, to borrow and to spend money than ever before. And people were told that it was their duty as citizens to spend money, to be consumers, that it is everybody's civic duty to make the economy go by buying stuff. This prosperity and this new mass consumption economy contributed to the economic conservatism of the times. So famous essay from 1906 by Werner Sombart, why is there no socialism in the United States? There actually is socialism in the United States, but Sombart was asking why the socialists had never taken control. And his answer was that Americans were too well fed to become socialists that only hungry men and women become revolutionaries. He said, socialist utopias crash on the reefs of roast beef and apple pie. A few decades later, in 1929, the journalist Lincoln Steffen said that big business was succeeding in doing what socialism had failed to do, provide food, shelter, and clothing for all. And in 1929, Herbert Hoover said, we are on the verge of banishing poverty from this nation. Well, but there's always a but, isn't there? It's just possible that Hoover spoke a little bit too soon. One of the points I want to make with that Dow Jones graph is that there were real limits to prosperity. Just because the line on the graph goes up doesn't mean that everybody is doing well. And what the cars and the radios and the jazz concealed was how uneven the gains, the economic gains of the era were. The 1920s were a time of great and growing income inequality. Some people were getting rich, but not everyone. And the culture war that I talked about in the last couple of lectures, the sort of urban jazz age flapper culture on the one side and the fundamentalist conservative culture on the other, the intensity of that culture war like the intensity of today's culture war was, I think, fueled by recognition that prosperity was uneven, that some people were getting richer while others were getting poorer. The writer and reformer Henry Lloyd, who I think you read a few weeks ago, called inequality the wedge, meaning it was driving a wedge between the rich and the poor. Americans used to say, go west and find your fortune. Lloyd said, our young men can no longer go west. They can only go up or down. So who didn't share in the prosperity of the 1920s? Well, the 1920s were not a prosperous decade for farmers. Uh, farmers had made pretty good money during the First World War when Europe was starving and food prices were high. But in the 1920s, commodity prices, food prices went down and agricultural production kept going up, which drove those prices only down further. Farm incomes declined steadily. Banks started foreclosing on thousands of farms whose owners couldn't meet their mortgage payments. Something like 3 million Americans migrated out of rural areas into the city. People don't do that because farming is good. The 1920s were not a particularly prosperous decade for African Americans, most of whom were farmers. It was an exciting period, yes, for the cultural elites in Harlem, for the people that made up the Harlem Renaissance and the black middle class and black upper class that W.E.B. Du Bois called the talented 10th. 
but the average black American, the ordinary African American did not share in the prosperity of this era. Here's a black man looking back on the period from many years later saying African Americans were born in depression. It didn't mean that much to him. The Great Depression, as you call it, only became official when it hit the white man. But the white working class wasn't really prospering that much in the 1920s either. I talked about the Red Scare a couple of lectures ago and how the political climate was very hostile to labor unions and business interests and the press all hammered home the idea that labor unions were un-American, they were foreign, they represented a menace to liberty and the American way of life. Employers took a hard line against the workers' movement in these years. They used strike breakers and scabs, private security forces to break strikes and break unions. And the result was that organized labor lost 2 million members during this decade, and employers succeeded in keeping wages very low. The result of all this is that in the 1920s, industrial output rose about 60%. Labor productivity rose about 60%. Those numbers might not sound spectacular because a few weeks ago, I was talking about the late 19th century, which was even more spectacular, but 60% is a huge increase. Corporate profits rose more than 60%, but industrial wages rose only about 6%. After you factor in inflation, 90% of American taxpayers actually had less disposable income in 1929 than they had in 1922. But the top 1% had increased their incomes by 63%. So our image of the 1920s as, a, as the roaring 20s, a decade of roaring prosperity, is based largely on how it felt to be wealthy. By 1929, the wealthiest 1% of American families were earning 25% of the money. They were making almost 40 times more than the average American. The richest 0.1%, the richest thousandth of Americans, held over a third of the nation's wealth. You hear a lot about income inequality and wealth inequality today, and that's because it has gotten ridiculously extreme. And people find all sorts of ways to represent this. If the United States economy was a pie divided among 20 people, the richest person would get over half the pie. If you take the wealthiest 400 people in the world, 400 people, you could fit them on an airplane. People like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, those people together own just under $3 trillion. This is an amount of money that the brain cannot comprehend. They say that this would be enough money to test everyone on earth for COVID, to eradicate malaria, to provide everyone on earth with clean water and waste removal, to eliminate all federal taxes for all families making less than $80,000 a year, to cut every American family a check for $10,000, and you could do all that and every one of those 400 people would still be a billionaire they would still have more money than they could possibly spend in their lifetime. People on the right, defenders of the rich, defenders of inequality say, it doesn't matter how you slice the pie if the whole pie is getting bigger. The rich create wealth. And so when they benefit, we all do. Well, people on the left, you know, people who think that income inequality is a problem, often present it as kind of a fairness issue or a justice issue. They ask, is it fair that you know, the world's richest 40 people uh, hold as much wealth as half of the human race, as, as three and a half billion people? I mean, I don't think that's fair. I think it's monstrous, but let's, let's try and stay away from judgment calls or morality, leave my politics out of it, and just look at the history. If you put sentiment aside, it's not just that it's unfair, it is dangerous. 
And the story of the 1920s and 30s shows why inequality is bad. Of course, it's bad for the poor, but it's not so great for the rich either. So like Deep Throat told Woodward and Bernstein, we need to follow the money. As I said before, a lot of the prosperity of the 1920s economy, a lot of the growth in that economy was driven by consumer spending, in particular on the new consumer durables, things like automobiles, radios, refrigerators. These products are called durables because when you buy one, you don't really need to buy another for a while. Remember, the average consumer was not getting richer in the 1920s. They were spending more for a time, but they were spending on credit and they were growing accustomed to higher levels of debt. But their real income relative to inflation was not growing. And so at a certain point, they were always going to stop buying cars and radios, appliances, and so on. But it's not just that. At the more macro scale, the retreat of the labor unions, the stagnation of wages, the deregulation of business just meant that on the whole, money was shifting in the economy, that the center of gravity in the economy was shifting away from wages towards profits, away from consumers to capitalists. Well, why does that matter? The pro-capitalist argument, the uh, Milton Friedman argument, the Calvin Coolidge argument, the argument in favor of low taxes and pro-business policies would be that capital creates economic growth and that helps everyone. They would say capitalists don't just pile up their money in heaps of gold, they invest it and they invest it in new enterprise. So surplus capital gets invested, it creates jobs, it increases productivity. That's what we're always told. But when you look at the history of the 1920s, you see the capitalists did not reinvest their profits in job creation. Real investment in industry actually plateaued and then declined. Industrial output kept going up and up, driven by uh, technological advancement, increased efficiency, but not by new capital investment. Profits kept going up and up, but not reinvestment in the productive economy. So if the rich were getting richer, which they manifestly were, if they were piling up bigger fortunes than ever before, why weren't they investing it in the industrial economy? Were they in fact hoarding it in, in piles of gold like uh, Scrooge McDuck? No, they were investing their money, but they weren't investing it in manufacturing. They weren't investing it in agriculture. They weren't investing it in things that make goods or create jobs. They were investing in real estate or in the stock market. They were doing what at the time was called speculating. And huge amounts of money, all these profits flowed into what were essentially non-productive sectors of the economy. I know when I say it like that, it sounds like I am making a moral judgment. Like there are, is a good sector of the economy and a bad, like there are virtuous investments and like there are selfish investments. I actually wanna keep moral judgments out of this. Putting those things in those terms don't really help understand the economy. People invest where they think they will get the best return. They put their money where they think they will get the most money back. And this is so natural that economists talk as if this is not really a decision at all. They talk like capital just flows into the sectors that provide the best returns, like, like water just flows downhill. And in the 1920s, productivity and output were growing so fast that things like the auto industry, the steel industry, and so on, they didn't need a ton of new investment. So there wasn't a really high return on capital invested there. If you had money to invest, yeah, you could open a new auto plant, but you would actually make much higher returns on your investment if you just put that money into the stock exchange or if you just bought up Florida real estate. So that's where that money went. 
billions of dollars flowed into these essentially non-productive investments. And when billions of dollars flow into one sector of the economy, what you get is a bubble. Real estate prices shot up in the 1920s. Uh, they shot up all over, just like they shoot up today. But Florida is the classic story. In the 1920s, Florida was becoming a tourist and a vacation destination. Land values started going up. Investors noticed this and put their money into Florida land. And of course, that made prices rise faster. By 1923, 1924, you started to look like a sucker if you weren't invested in Florida real estate. It was such a sure thing. So people put their money in there and they took out double, triple mortgages to buy as much Florida real estate as they could and cash in on the boom. There's a famous case, a story of a, a sort of an old man who invested his life savings in a Florida land deal and his sons thinking he was crazy had him committed to a sanitarium. Uh, but by 1925, the land he had bought for $1,700 was worth something like $350,000 and the man won his release and sued his sons. And this is the kind of story that everybody was telling everybody else in the mid 1920s. But the thing about bubbles is they pop. How many of you have ever heard of Aladdin City, Florida? I don't see any hands. The Florida land boom, the Florida bubble popped in around 1926. Investment had far outpaced any actual construction or demand. A lot of the so-called vacation properties that people in New York and Chicago thought they were investing in turned out to just be swampland and banks started calling in shaky mortgages and a wave of bankruptcies hit the developers and the Florida banks. As if to punctuate this, as if to underline it, Miami was hit by an extremely intense hurricane in September 1926 that almost literally blew away the fortunes created by the Florida land boom. But it wasn't the hurricane that popped the bubble or destroyed those fortunes. The whole thing was a house of cards to begin with. But the collapse of the Florida land bubble didn't stop speculation. There was still capital, people still had fortunes, and capital wants to be invested. So it moved, it flowed like water going downhill into the stock market. The stock market enjoyed a spectacular rise in the 1920s. And of course, the more it rose, the more people wanted in on the action. I like this painting of Trinity Church on Wall Street. I love that it was painted in 1929, and to me, it looks like a visual pun. Uh, the, the spire of the church looks like that graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, that steep steeple going straight up and straight down. A lot of middle-class Americans bought their first stocks in the 1920s. People who had never been investors before, who maybe didn't know what they were doing, flooded into the market and helped fuel that boom. One of the things that made the bull market of the 1920s particularly volatile a bull market is when the market's going up and a bear market is when the market's going down. One of the things that made the bull market particularly volatile was buying on margin, which basically means borrowing money to buy more stocks than you can afford with the stocks themselves as collateral. So let's say you have enough money to buy 10 shares, but instead of buying 10 shares, you borrow money and buy 100 shares. If the stock goes up, it's easy to pay back your loan. But if it goes down, well, you're in trouble. So buying on margin has the effect of multiplying your potential profit, but also your potential loss. After the crash, Wall Street people would blame the rise and fall of the stock market on inexperienced investors who didn't know what they were doing, who rushed into the market in these years. 
But corporate America was not immune to irrational exuberance. The big corporations, General Motors, Standard Oil, Chrysler, the pillars of America's economy, they dove into the Wall Street frenzy too, because just like everyone else, the big corporations found that they could make more money investing in the stock market or supplying money for these margin loans than they could even in investing in their own operations. They could encourage people to speculate and charge 10%, 12%, even 20% interest on margin loans for speculators. And that's a lot more money than they could make building cars. Here's a kind of a long quote from Mariner Eccles, who was he was a millionaire, he was a banker, he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And he warned that mass consumption requires wages. It requires a relatively equal distribution of wealth. He said that the economy of the 1920s was a giant suction pump, making the rich richer by taking purchasing power out of the hands of mass consumers. Mass production, he said, has to be accompanied by mass consumption. And if it isn't, the game will stop. Now, there were warnings of economic trouble. There, there always are warnings, but the, <laughs> they're always ignored. Uh, housing and automobile sales started to plateau around 1925, 1926. They even went down after 1926. New construction was sluggish, and the international economic situation grew more dire. In the late 1920s, Germany announced that it could no longer pay its reparations, its war debts to France and England, the debts it was obliged to pay by the Treaty of Versailles. This meant that the French and English could not pay their debts to the United States. So everything started getting a little dicey. But for everybody that warned of trouble to come, there were five more people to shout them down, to say, as Wall Street Magazine does here, bye, bye, bye. And so we arrive at the inevitable crash. In September of 1929, a group of British investors were jailed for fraud and forgery. And this triggered a minor crash on the London Stock Exchange. But American financiers insisted that nothing like that could happen in America and the New York Stock Exchange would not be touched. On October 24th, 1929, now known as Black Thursday, a dip in the market suddenly became a panic and the market lost 11% of its value in a few hours with so many stocks being traded that people couldn't keep track. A group of bankers stepped in to restore confidence. They bought a large block of US Steel and other major corporation stock well above their trading price to show their confidence in the economy. And, and by doing that, they stabilized the market on Friday. Then the market closed for the weekend and over the weekend, everybody had time to get skittish, to worry. And so when the market opened on Monday morning, a lot of these investors who were on margin decided to get out of the market while the getting was good. And the next day, Black Tuesday, October 29, was even worse. The Dow dropped a record 13% in one day. $30 billion that had existed on Sunday simply did not exist on Wednesday. All of the margin investors were wiped out first. But as they defaulted on their loans, the banks that had loaned them all this money started failing too. And hundreds of banks collapsed in October and November 1929. And that meant that millions of families who weren't even invested in the stock market lost their life savings. Credit froze. Everybody stopped lending money to anyone. Nobody could pay their debts back. Nobody could borrow any money. Thousands of businesses went bankrupt. 
And even those that survived had to lay off workers, had to cut wages. Some of the big capitalists tried to save things. William Durant, who was one of the founders of General Motors, and the Rockefellers, the family that, that created and owned Standard Oil, tried to step in, tried to buy huge blocks of stock, again, to show their confidence in the economy. But all that happened was they lost tons of money. The Rockefellers lost 80% of their fortune. Durant lost all of his money. He ended up running a bowling alley. The financial economy of the 1920s was wiped out in a number of days. And the real economy underneath, the productive economy that actually employs people and feeds people, ground to a virtual halt. But as awful as those final months of 1929 were, the worst was yet to come. By the winter of 1932-1933, nearly half of America's banks had failed. 15 million people, that's a third of the workforce, were unemployed. Now, an economist might tell you that the stock market crash didn't cause the Great Depression in a simple one-to-one -one way. But I'm a historian, not an economist, so I deal in stories, not single causes. And they were clearly part of the same story, the same story of global economic collapse. So this is the historical case against income inequality. This is the case against shifting a society's resources away from wages and productive investment into financial speculation. Income inequality at this level is not sustainable. If we zoom out from this graph of the Dow Jones, if we look at the Dow over the span of a century, what do we see? It makes the peaks and valleys of 1929, 1932 look small. That's the distance of time. We can see the prosperity, the relative prosperity of the 1950s and 60s. We can see the downturn of the 70s. And we can see, I don't know what to call it, the neoliberal financialization of the economy after 1980 and the extreme volatility of the 21st century that we're living through right now. But remember that the Dow is not a graph of prosperity. In a lot of ways, something like this tells us more. Here we see so clearly that over the last 40 years, the same thing is happening. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. And an economy in which this happens, in which a few people just keep getting richer and richer, but the great majority are doing worse year after year. And that describes the United States in the 1920s and it describes the United States in the 2020s is not a fair economy. It is not an efficient economy. It's not a stable economy. It's not going to support the kind of society we want. I'm gonna let Ginger Rogers sing us out Angste Orfe Achingway. Here we in Hayes, the Arnie May. Easy ice skates around.